This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. So, David, welcome to Anaheim. Oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> how, how is your experience? So, just for our listeners, this is the very beginning of David Dalt meets Los Angeles Religious Education Congress. Um, we're here day one. Uh, I got in yesterday and have had my usual settling in and seeing friends and, and getting ready and meetings and all the stuff that has to go into uh, making LA Congress work for those who are involved in presenting and presiding and that sort of stuff. David is, uh, is a first timer and I am so excited to hear about how it's going. And so he hasn't experienced anything but the exhibit hall so far. Um, David, what do you give us the lowdown? First of all, we're literally in the backyard of Disneyland. You didn't tell me that part that we would literally be yeah. able to like throw paper airplanes at Mickey. Everything is Disney here. <laughs> you can buy Disney tickets at your hotel. Everything has a Disney. The, the best part too is, as a Franciscan, I walk down the streets, the sidewalks of Anaheim, and everybody just assumes I'm a Jedi, and I don't correct them. <laughs> but it's you're either here for Disney or you're here for the Catholic Religious Education Congress, which is just this amazing, amazing thing. Well, I, I will simply say that my experience that started at 3 o'clock this morning Central Time. God bless you. Uh, because I had to get stuff to Midway to get all of it packed and loaded onto the plane and then to get here. And it beautiful flight. Uh, couldn't ask for a, a nicer flight and great people in my row and all of that. Uh, but then when I got here... Um, I've had a great time in the two hours that I've been here, most of that being setting up here at the Liturgical Press uh, liturgical press booth. And by the way, thank you to Lit Press for giving us space today to uh, record the Francis Effect. Yeah, it's very exciting. We're, we're thrilled. This partnership and sponsorship with Liturgical Press just continues to grow. Uh, great <laughs> staff here, great team, and they've been very generous to us. Um, and thanks to all the folks who stopped by already, who recognize the Francis effect or are interested in it, and have uh, come and talked to us. A lot of friends of the, a lot of friends of the podcast have come by and have said hello to Frank. That's right. I was going to say friends of Frank, as David puts it. Um, have you had a chance to walk the exhibit hall at all? Only a little bit, as I was trying to find lunch, and uh, I made the mistake of getting here right at lunch hour, so I have only just now gotten my veggie burger. Um, so, but. Uh, I mean, this this is similar to other conferences that I've been to, so that part I, I kind of knew to expect. The one thing that is amazing to me is when I go to other conferences, it's always a mix of Protestant and Catholic and various philosophy presses and things like that. Here it is straight on Catholic all the time, like as far as the eye can see. 
and I'm going to enjoy over the next couple of days just kind of marinating in all of the options that are out there. Well, one of the things, too, that's very striking is that it's all Catholic, but it, it really reflects the uh, the kind of big tent Catholicism. Case in point, all the different ethnic groups and, and uh, kind of uh, cultural heritages that are represented. We see a group of, uh, of uh, dancers from uh, a, a Southeast Asian community. It looks like maybe a Pacific community. Um, you just never know what you're going to see. It's incredible. Well, and that's one thing that immediately in walking into the hall here in Anaheim, I was immediately apparent to me is that it, all sorts of protestations to the to the contrary by certain pockets of of dioceses, Catholicism is not a white religion. Catholicism is a multicolor religion, and it is beautiful to observe all of the variety just here and to and to see that there's so many different ways to be Catholic, and that to me has just been, I mean, just even just walking in the halls, that's been so apparent, and I loved seeing that. In multilingual, too, we yeah. should say that there are three official languages of the LA Religious Ed Congress, uh, English, Spanish, and Vietnamese, and so it's, uh, it's very, very exciting. And so uh, with that, you're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. We are in Anaheim at the LA Religious Education Congress, and we are at the Liturgical Press booth. Liturgical Press is one of our sponsors and has given us some space today, this first day of the Congress, to record uh, some interviews with people who are here at this amazing, huge event. And we're very excited to have with us a, a good friend of mine, a, a prolific author and a scripture scholar, uh, Steve Bins, who is, um, well, we've connected many times over the years. Many times. Um, though his specialty is scripture and, uh, you know, access to scripture, study of scripture, um, he is... I, you're a you're a polymath because you you've written on Unipero Serra. You uh, you and I have a Merton connection. Why don't you tell our listeners? Tell us how do you introduce yourself? I don't even. <laughs> I started doing it. I'm like I don't know how to do this. <laughs> I am a Catholic freelance writer and speaker. That's I, a, I guess that's the best way to describe my work. But uh, but you know I I began doing this kind of work in the oh in the 80s I guess, and I guess the. I guess you would say that the the keynote of my life comes from De Verbum, you know, when the church charged us all to open wide the scriptures to all the people of God. And that's really what my life is about. Uh, I've been working for Catholic publishers and, and uh, worked for liturgical pr with Liturgical Press and Little Rock Scripture Study for many years back in the 90s. I've written a lot for them. Uh, but now I'm a freelance writer. So the last 10 years I've been writing and speaking and leading pilgrimages and uh, basically doing all the things that I'd want to do in retirement. And, and, and so, so good at that. I should say, too, for our listeners, you may be familiar with Steve Binz's name because of his Threshold Bible Study program. Um, and, and that's where I think, you know, he's prolific in a lot of areas, but I mean, you, how many volumes are there now? In that there are about 30, about 30 wow. uh, books in that series. They are 30 uh, lessons. So ideally, you know, if a person is studying the Bible on their own, this is a good guide to read with books of the Bible or themes of the Bible. About, uh, it's about half and half now, books and themes. Well, Steve, let me ask you, since I'm interested in this path and I'm kind of trotting on this path, how did you make that transition into doing freelance work? What was that like? And how long did it take? 
<laughs> took uh, most of my life. <laughs> I would do it for about, I started when I was about in my early 50s, I guess, freelancing. But, you know, it took a while to get there. I worked for a lot of different publishing companies and, uh, and was uh, writing and speaking uh, in addition to, to that work. So it took a while to, to work up to this. But I love it. You know, I, I'm able to uh, work to uh, to work on books for different publishers. Continue this uh, Threshold Bible Study series, which we're continuing to publish two or three volumes each year. And then, in the last five years or so, I've started leading pilgrimages. So this year, I'm going to uh, going to be in Spain twice, actually. In uh, May, we're going to I'm leading a pilgrimage, beginning in uh, Lourdes, traveling all through Spain to Avila and Santiago de Compostelo, wow. finally ending in Fatima in Portugal. And then in, in October, I'm doing the Way of uh, St. Ignatius in Spain. So traveling from, um, from Loyola uh, through the pilgrimage route of, of Ignatius himself, down to uh, Manresa and uh, Montserrat and uh, Barcelona. We'll definitely have on our uh, website, on the show notes, a link to your website where people can get more information about the pilgrimages if they're, if they're piqued by that. I, I certainly, it sounds exciting to me. Yeah. Yeah. What, what is your favorite part of leading those pilgrimages? Is it the people that you meet or the things that you get to see, or is it something else? You know, it's, it's all of those things. I, I love introducing people to these places. The Holy Land is my absolute favorite. It's my favorite place on earth, and there's nothing better than to see, you know, what opens up in people's minds and hearts as they touch the places where Jesus walked. And uh, so we take a a Jesus-centered pilgrimage throughout all the places of the Holy Land. And then I also do uh, Rome and the Way of the Saints in Italy. There's a wonderful pilgrimage that I've done a couple times through uh, Poland. You know, and, and so I'm exploring a lot of different different new places that are uh, really sacred places, you know, to touch us, to be in a sacred place and to experience that with a group of people all sharing the same Catholic faith, to be able to celebrate Mass uh, every day with that group and to have uh, prayerful reflections, as well as, you know, the, the fun of seeing these fascinating places. It's just a, just a remarkable experience. One of your more recent books is, speaking of pilgrimage, we're kind of right here in the middle of one of those pilgrimages, right? That's uh, Unipero Serra and the Franciscan missions along the, the California coast into the Pacific Northwest. How did you get interested in that? You know, when, when Pope Francis announced that he was going to canonize St. Junipero Serra, uh, I've always kind of... Uh, knew a little bit about his life, but I decided, you know, to really start reading the biographies and, and studying his, his letters and, and just was fascinating by this guy. You know, in, in midlife, which you know, he was an older guy in those, in, uh, in those years, uh, so he, he went to California, he gave his life to the missions in the New World. First he started in Mexico and then eventually up to California, became uh, the father, the president of the Franciscan Mission efforts in California, which established eventually to go on, went on to establish the 21 California missions. So I, I, uh, I write about his life, about his Franciscan spirituality and that how that conforms and, and is very similar to Native American spirituality, you know, to kind of form kind of a healing bond between uh, Christianity and Native spirituality and uh, to show how that's not an opposition, but, but really a, a wonderful blend. And then, uh, then I take each one of the 21 missions and show how they were founded and, and, and then wrote a kind of a prayer experience for each one. So here we are, we're doing our LA Congress special. 
Steve, how long, how many times have you been coming to LA Congress? How many yeah. times have you been here? I, I started coming out here in the, um, let me think now, it would have been about 1990 was probably my first. And I've been out here at least, uh, probably at least every other year. Wow. And uh, been out the last several. I've, I've spoken quite a number of times out here, given workshops. This year, I'm just here. I just decided to come uh, and see a lot of old friends here in the publishing world and, and meeting a lot of new friends and networking, you know, with a lot of uh, editors are out here for different publishers. And, and it's an important place to be. It's sort of like the whole, the Catholic Church uh, finds its focus here in L.A. once a year for these days. So let me ask you this. What is your favorite part about L.A. Congress? Well, I, I love the encountering people. You know, that great uh, Pope Francis phrase, the encounter, the encounter with the people of God. And not just with the publishers, although that's what I'm most interested in. I like to go to a lot of these exhibits where different kind of ministries are displayed and talk with people about, you know, just what they're doing. Some of them are just kind of upstart organizations where people are just doing really good work in evangelization or, or working with the poor and, and all sorts of, of, of wonderful things. And to, just to hear their story and how the Lord is leading them and, and uh, how they're growing and what they're accomplishing is just very inspiring. So the whole, I don't know if you could just see this exhibit hall here, you know, hundreds <laughs> and hundreds of publishers and exhibitors and all sorts of religious articles and uh, books and, and uh it's just uh, fascinating to be to be here, but to know that all this stuff is being disseminated all throughout uh, the, the the church in the United States. So and many good things going on. How does it feel to know that your work is part of that dissemination? Your work is part of what is helping to form the the lives and the spirits of the people that come to congresses like this. Well, it's it's really gratifying. Uh, it, when when I have periods when I have several weeks at home just writing at my desk. I, uh, I need a little motivation sometimes. So I think back on the last LA Congress and, and talking to people who have read my works and been inspired by them in some way. And in fact, just 10 minutes ago, I, I talked to a sister, a very young woman religious who just made her uh, permanent vows with the Sisters of the Sacred Heart here in California. And she said that she read my threshold Bible study volume on the Sacred Heart of Jesus during her the final 30 days of her preparation for her final vows. Oh, wow. And that wow. formed the, the, kind of the, the basis of her uh, spiritual preparation for that experience. And, you know, to hear things like that is just so, it uh, just keeps me going. And uh, the pay's not too good, but the, uh, the mo other, other motivations are out of this world. So I just love what I do. Crowns in heaven, we like to say as theologians. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's what we're working for. Yeah, that's right. So in addition to the pilgrimages on your deck, uh, what's, what's next? What else is on the horizon? Um, I'm doing a lot of uh, speaking, actually. Uh, although next Lent, I turned down several invitations that I uh, that people ask me about for parish retreats and missions during Lent because I'm spending the whole of Lent next year in Rome. Oh, wow. Sort of a personal retreat, pilgrimage experience. Just going to be me. I'm staying with the um, Augustinians at their house because they're cheap. And uh, <laughs> well, it's the, hard to the, the, find a place in Rome that's cheap wait, are in they the middle of the city. I was going to say, are they cheap or the, the, the rental is cheap? <laughs> the, the rental's cheap. Yeah, it's cheap for people like me who uh, like to have um, a comfortable place, but, but simple. 
And uh, so I'm going to do all the, the station churches each year of the city of Rome and just have the time to spend studying, you know, the, all the churches and all the good things that are in that city. I, you know, I did graduate studies in Rome many, many years ago, but... You know, when you're in graduate studies, it's kind of hard to make time to, to do all those things, to, to see the, all the sites. And there's so many, you know, I've seen all the main sites, the four major basilicas and the, the Roman Forum and the Colosseum, but, but to spend, you know, you can spend months and months there just, just seeing everything. Yeah. And so I'm going to be there with my camera and my, some guidebooks and, and just uh, make it a real spiritual experience too. Excellent. And so you've been to, so you, you did graduate studies in Rome. What specifically did you study? I studied, well, I, I did uh, uh, theology at the Gregorian University, St. Ignatius's original university, and then uh, Pontifical Biblical Institute. I received a licentiate in sacred scripture there, which is, has been the foundation of my biblical work through the years. Doesn't get much better than that for scripture. Well, Stephen J. Bins, we are so grateful you took the time to be with us and uh, to introduce you to our listeners. Um, uh, be sure to check out his Threshold Bible Study program. Uh, you won't be disappointed. Thanks. We'll be back Thank in you. a minute with the Francis Effect. <laughs> Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend I'm here with my friend Dan Haran and people in the background who are enjoying themselves here at the LA uh, Religious Education Con Congress. We're here with Bridget Durham. And where are you from, Bridget? I'm from Flagstaff, Arizona. Okay. It's Grand Canyon State. Okay. Did you fly or drive to get here? I drove. Okay. Yesterday. That, how long did that take you? That took us ooh, seven and a half hours, maybe. Wow. Yeah, okay. it was a long day. That's more of a commitment than I made. I just took a five hour plane ride to get here. But nice. Yes. No delays, no. No, no. Knock on wood. Yeah, right? Yeah. You get a lot of them. I do, unfortunately. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hazard of the ministry. Uh, yeah, professional hazard. So we're. we're enjoying talking to folks who are both presenters and speakers as well as people who have come regularly to LA Congress and people like our own David Dalt, co-host and producer who is a first timer here at LA Sweet. Congress. And so all of this is new to him. Overwhelmed is the word that <laughs> it I would is. Say. And it's only getting more and more so because we're at a point where a number of the workshops are ending so our listeners may hear some of that white noise din in the background. That's that's the people of God shopping and, 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 and laughing and having a good time and just energized by information. Bridget, tell us about how long, is this, this isn't your first time, you've been here before. Yeah, I think this is my fourth or fifth okay. Congress. Yeah, and so I first came when I taught RE, when my kids were little, and so I started coming as a catechist, and then I kind of, as they grew up, I moved into adult um, catechesis, so, um, so I've been coming. Now I'm, I'm a formation director for our secular Franciscan order, so I'm here um, trying to get as much Franciscan info as I can get, so. Thank you, Father Dan. <laughs> I promise to our listeners, we're not just getting people who think favorably or saying nice things about me. David's here. He can verify this. So what was it that attracted you to the Franciscan order as a layperson? Oh, wow. Good question. Um, you know, I think first and foremost, it kind of came to our parish. Our parish consolidated, and we were named after St. Francis. It's San Francisco de Assis in Flagstaff. And so we just kind of really started educating our community about St. Francis. We had a lot of different um, exhibits and teachers, things like that. So I, I feel like Francis came to me more than I came to Francis. I love it when that happens. When me a saint too. finds yeah. you, that's so cool. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I was fortunate. That's awesome. Yeah. One of the nice things here is that you see all the branches of the Franciscan family. You have secular mm-hmm. Franciscans, the three first orders. Occasionally, you'll, you'll come across the poor Claire here and there, you know, third order regular. So it's, it's always great to have yeah. that Franciscan family. Do you have favorite workshops? I mean, some people come here and they're, you know, you mentioned you were a catechist and have now moved into adult faith formation and, and formation in the Franciscan family. You know, some people are like liturgists and they come and, and there's so many options. You know, you have choices. You could fill, you know, your whole weekend with just liturgy workshops or just spirituality workshops or just scripture workshops. What are your favorites? What do you go to? Ooh, uh, there's so much to choose from. Um, but I kind of tend to like to go more about how are we acting as church in our world today. So kind of more like current events. And that's what I love about the podcast is just hearing that current events and how are we internalizing and understanding those in terms of our faith. So I try to stick to that type of stuff. Kind of Stuff that seems very timely, you know, right. kind of grabs your attention. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you go to the liturgies at all? Oh, yeah. I'll yeah. be going to your liturgy. Um. <laughs> I swear, I'm not just... <laughs> this is coming across very poorly. That was not a setup. Um, I was going to ask about the closing liturgy, because for me, that is the most powerful thing. And sadly, I can't be here this year for mm-hmm. it. So is that something... Do you stick around for that usually? Yeah. And then, yeah, then we take off because we get a long drive to go back after that. But it is... It's... It's so uplifting. It's so powerful. So just the music, the the prayer, um, the, and the work that goes into it, you just feel so connected, and you just realize how big and how beautiful all of our churches. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and and I think I've shared this on our podcast before that every year it's usually around the offertory during the preparation of the altar and the gifts that like I find myself crying you know mm-hmm. public crying because the music is so beautiful mm-hmm. it's hard to convey you know for for our listeners you go to your parish and, and think of your favorite liturgical songs your favorite hymns the people who wrote those songs the people who who in you know who are inspired to do that they're the ones who are actually leading the music mm-hmm. it's it's Marty Hagen and David Haas and Tony Alonso and, and Liam Lalton and, and Rufino Zaragoza. I mean, it's it's all of the big names and they're all up there playing the instruments and in the choir and, and cantering. It's it's hard to imagine such a powerful experience. Um, it's crazy. Yeah, and, and your heart is just lifted to song. And, you know, even though I may not be the best singer, but in that moment, I am the best singer ever. I mean, I'm just belting it out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you're just so inspired to do that. I mean, it's like seven, seven or 8,000 people in the arena for these masses. It's really something else. It's very beautiful. And uh, you came here by yourself, or did you bring your family as well, or who all is here with you? I drove here with my friend Brenda Smith, who is somewhere around here, and she is a teacher at our um, Catholic school, our parish school. She's a first grade teacher, and she's been, I think this is her third or fourth time also. So we did a road trip and came on west. (laughs) <laughs> pros, pros. Well, Bridget, thank you so much for joining us. Thank and thank you, you for listening to Thanks. the podcast. Oh, yeah, I, I love the podcast. I look forward to it. And, and I really appreciate the work that both you guys are doing. So thank you very Enjoy much. Enjoy the thank rest you. of Congress. Thank you. Yes, I You're will. listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment.
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks we get together to look at current events and discuss them from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. We are here at our special LA Congress Religious Education uh, Extravaganza Special Edition. And we are so honored and privileged to have with us uh, Father Brian Massengale, who is Professor of Theological Ethics. And I can't remember the title of your chair, but he is uh, holds an endowed chair at Fordham University. James uh, and Nancy Buckman Chair in Applied Christian Ethics. That's why I couldn't remember it. It's a mouthful. <laughs> it but. is a mouthful. <laughs> But uh, you know, Father Massengale is is a leading ethicist in the in the Catholic tradition. Previously taught at Marquette University and a number of other institutions, and uh, we are just so thrilled to have you with us. Good to be with you, Dan. It's really great to be with you. Yeah. So we've been asking people because we're at LA Congress, you know, a little bit first and foremost about their experience of Congress. So how many? You've been here. You're a pro. You are. You are. You've been doing this for a while. This is, I think. It's in the 20s now. Yeah, wow, I've been I've been wow. coming here for over 20 some years. Yeah, I've done everything here. I presided at masses. I've keynoted in a large arena, and, and so it's a it's a really exciting energy that's here. I like to say the LA Congress is where the entire spectrum of the Catholic Church is here. Um, those who are pre-Tridentine Catholics and those who are longing for Vatican IV, they're all here right now, and it's a it, the energy is exciting. You look at the the, the the group that's here, and it really is the Catholic Church. I mean, people of every race, every language, way of life. Yeah, it's really an exciting place to be. Yeah, it's so exciting. I mean, it really is the big tent Catholicism that is reflective of the global church and of the church in the U.S. Well, absolutely. And I think that, you know, this is a celebration of the Catholic Church and its richness and its variety and its tensions, too. I mean, because not everyone in the Catholic Church gets along in that big tent. So, but the thing is that we're all here, and it's a powerful testimony of, of what our faith is that calls people who are different to come together and to celebrate a common faith. So you you just joined us. First of all, you're being very, very generous, and we're so grateful because we're sandwiched right now between two major events. You just finished presenting a workshop, and you're presiding and preaching at one of the massive uh, nightly liturgies that they have here at Congress. Um, As you are, too. So <laughs> that's we're, true. We're, we're both in this together, right? <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the workshop you just did that you, you came from? What, what have you been presenting on here at Congress this year? Um, the workshop I just did was um, looking at race and the limits of dialogue. And so it was look at the characteristic Catholic response to instances of racial injustice is a call for dialogue for the two sides to get together and talk about their differences. And I want to point out how limited that response is. That dialogue presumes that racism is a matter of misunderstanding or miseducation and if people just sit down and talk together that we can reason it out whereas racism at its core is about the maldistribution of goods and benefits such as education and housing and employment and those things cannot be resolved simply through sitting down and talking about our differences that that's a very limited approach and when it's the only approach or the default approach it actually becomes the church becomes complicitous and the very injustice that it seeks to critique. And so I went to point that out, and I also then looked at the limits of the current um, pastoral letter that was issued by the bishops in November of 2018, saying that while there were some good things in that letter, um, you know, the idea that racism is a life issue is an explicit um, teaching that I endorse. However, there's a lot in that letter that isn't there. Um, there isn't an explicit... Uh, the, um, condemnation of white supremacy, for example. 
There's nothing in there that even mentions white nationalism as a major social issue. There is no critique of, um, of, white, of white supremacy. And so the very issues that are most pressing in our society are not being talked about in that letter. So I, I talked about that and said that we really need to have a deeper, renewed approach to talking about this social evil. What our listeners will be familiar with your name. Uh, David and I you know, make reference to you very, very regularly when we're talking about issues of race and racial justice in the US. Um, and a shout out to your, your book with Orbis, you know, Racial Justice in the Catholic Church. Um, one thing that I've always found very helpful in teaching and has come up in our conversations um, is, is the distinction you make um, talking about these kind of discrete acts of racial animus or hatred that yes. people think of as quote unquote racist, and they are. Right. But, but actually what you're describing right now, uh, from hearing you correctly is that one of the big things that a lot of U.S. Catholics aren't aware of is this pervasiveness of what you identify in that book as a culture of racism. Exactly. That I've, as I talk about in the book, that people have a common sense understanding of racism. You know, person A, usually but not always white, does something deliberately, consciously, intentionally negative to person B, usually but not always black or Latino, because of the color of their skin. And that's our default understanding. But that, it's a problem, but it's not the problem. The problem is that we're living in a society that the playing field is not level, and it's been intentionally made unlevel through a long history of laws and policies, and that we participate in these things without even conscious awareness, and that racism forms us into a certain way of thinking that this is the way our society should be, in a society that where white people just naturally have a, a, a privileged place privilege place in society and that that can be something that we don't even, that white people can participate in without even knowing about it just as I can as a man can participate in you know male privilege without even being realizing that I think that's just normal and it's until women tell me that no this is not normal um, that's the kind of thing we're really working at and the deepest level of racial injustice that the next frontier for us to face as a society and as a church. It's so powerful you're bringing that in because I think, as you just rightly said, we're so conditioned to look for the visible signs of animosity, but these are much more invisible invisible benefits that, that people enjoy, and because they enjoy them, they tend not to be critical of them. Oh, this feels good for me, therefore I shouldn't think of this as a bad thing. But those benefits can be can be racialized. Those benefits can be uh, can be chauvinistic. Those benefits can be bigoted in ways that are perhaps even more effective and powerful than the direct personal racism that sometimes we default to talking about. Exactly, and I think it's just something is you know, commonplace as when a white person speaks, they're taken more seriously than when a black person speaks. Mm. Um, so that. There are times when I'm looking, when people want a white person to validate that. So if I say something, they'll say, oh, yeah, you sound like so-and-so. And it's like, well, no, I'm sounding like myself. But the idea is that, you know, there are certain voices that count and are given greater, greater credence. Or that there are certain police practices that are routine in communities of color, but because white people don't experience them, they're not aware that there are different levels of policing for different communities, and it's got nothing to do with crime or lack of crime. It's because of our perception of where the crime is, that there are certain practices that are tolerated. 
Well, when you talk about that kind of culture of racism and, and systemic racism in the U.S., especially around police practices, one of the things you'll hear kind of naysayers present is, well, you know, there are plenty of uh, Latino uh, and, and black police officers, and so you can't say that the system is racist. What that doesn't take into account is the internalized racism that takes place, too, in, in, in terms of certain expectations of normativity and the way that people are evaluated, right? Well, exactly. And not only that, but when you're living in a culture of privilege, you naturally want to get rewarded by the system. And so you've got to conduct yourself in a certain way if you're going to exist in that system. And so the system rewards those who conform and it punishes those who don't. For example, even as a black person, as a priest, if I point out that there's racism in the church, I can be punished for that. I remember as a seminarian, for example, um, when, you know, the yearly evaluations you go oh, through. Yeah. yeah. And so one of the questions that they always raised for me was, well, how is Brian going to work in a white parish? How is he going to work in a white parish? And so finally, my deacon year, I heard this enough. I said, look, um, I've been living in an all-white community for over four years. I've shown I can live in a white community quite well. You have never once in four years asked, how are you living with a black person? And so it's the very normativity that I was supposed to conform to them, but they had no clue that they were also supposed to how are they looking at themselves now they were living with me. That's the normativity of whiteness that we're talking about. You mentioned earlier the deficiency of the bishop's most recent pastoral letter. What can be done to help to raise the level of awareness among the bishops? Is there a way to is there a way for lay people to advocate with the episcopacy to help to make them more attuned to these essential questions? I think the laity need to speak out to their bishops, and I think we need to take the responsibility to educate our bishops. Let me give an example out of another context. Um, at at the, the summit on sexual abuse where the bishops were, or the, and the, of the world were gathered, um, the Nigerian sister who spoke and in her opening remarks, she looked at Pope Francis and addressed him as Brother Francis. That was beautiful. Because what she did was she said, okay, I know you're the Pope, I respect you in your role, but I'm going to speak to you as a brother in Christ. And because you're a brother in Christ and I am a member of the church, I have something I need to say to you. And I'm going to say it to you honestly, but as a brother. And I think that's what we need to do with our bishops, frankly. We need to respect them for the office that they hold, but we need to speak to them as, you know, not your excellency, but as brother bishop, that you are a brother in my faith, and because of that, there are certain things that you don't know that you need to hear. I think that's the way we create a new church, whether it's on issues of sexual abuse or issues of racial justice, that we as Catholics who are not bishops need to have the courage to speak to our bishops as brother and not simply as authority figures. Another thing I know that is uh, near and dear to your heart in your research, but also in your pastoral ministry and your, your public presentations, you've, you've delivered workshops here at Congress. Um, you recently gave um, a retreat that got a lot of attention, we can say. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a word for it. <laughs> for, in, in particular, for uh, gay seminarians and priests. Yes. Um, you know, a, a time to, you know, reflect on one's vocation and everything in a space that, that is safe and, and comfortable where that isn't the, the number one kind of identifying characteristic. It is part of one's identity, right. um, but where they could feel comfortable. And that you got picked up by some, we would call them alt-right or alt-Catholic media things, and quite a quite a, 
really scandalous and kind of um, horrific and cruel vitriolic response surfaced, including protesters outside a retreat center. Right? It was it was it was really awful. Um, I can't um, sugarcoat it. It was just terrible. Um, the kind of things that were said about me personally about the retreat, the mischaracterizations of it. Um, it spurred uh, for the first time in my memory a. The need that the sisters who sponsored the retreat center had to hire an armed security guard to be present to protect the retreatants. I mean, so you're leading this retreat with the presence of an armed security guard who needs to be there for your own safety um, because there are people who call themselves fellow Catholics who were protesting and greeting us with, you know, some, it was a deacon was there dressed in a cope leading an exorcism. Um, so we had to be, you know, escorted, a police escort onto the retreat grounds. And these are for, you know, people who have dedicated themselves to the church who want to come together to pray. I mean, it, this is the thing that I can't wrap my mind around is that is, what is so controversial about people coming together to pray? And frankly, people ask me, well, why would you want to do this? And I said, well, because I'm a priest. This is what we do. We, we lead people in prayer. And if I can't do that for anyone, then I, there's no reason for me to wear this collar. Um, but it was a beautiful experience of, uh, we were talking earlier, and I was telling you how I usually don't like priest gatherings because when priests get together, some weird dynamics happen. But anyway, you know about that. But this gathering, people were so honest and transparent, and it was a real holy moment. It was sacred. Um, and I looked at them and at one point and said, you know, this is not the group that the church needs to be concerned about. That this is a group of people who are living honest and holy lives. And I am more concerned about priests who can't or don't have that level of transparency and honesty in their life. That's where the problems come in in the church, gay or straight. So it was a very beautiful moment and a holy moment. And uh, the sisters who ran the, uh, the re response to the retreat center, um, the retreat center also doubled as a retirement community. And one of the sisters there was a, a former grade school teacher of mine. And so she said, we've just been praying for you guys and praying for you. We're so glad you're here. You make this place so holy. And I said, that's the church. That's right. That's Amen. the church. Amen. And so, you know, yes, there are, that's what keeps me going when there's voices of negativity that are out there and they're, they're vitriolic and they're, they're evil. I think we have to say they're evil, but they are not the only voices in the church, that there are really these wonderful, beautiful, saintly other voices who welcome all of God's people and that's what keeps me going as a Catholic. I think it, fo it follows and makes so much sense to me on many levels, but as you're talking about this too, um, this particular experience of this retreat, I'm reminded of Pope Francis's recent exhortation on holiness and how he says, you know, this is not for a select few. This is for all of us by virtue of baptism. It's not about what your sexual orientation is and it's not about, you know, uh, how much money you make. It's not about which, uh, whether you're married or whether you're religious or whether you're a mm -hmm. clergy. It doesn't matter whether you're five years old or 50 years old or 100 years old. Um, and and it's, it's just so depressing 
that there's a, a pocket, and, and oftentimes it's not a very large group of Catholics, no, but it's they're not, a vocal it, They're group. very vocal, they're very organized, and they're very well-funded. We need to say that out loud, too. Yeah, exactly. um, when you're talking about this you know, universal call to holiness, as Vatican II would put it, I'm reminded of, I know you're a big Burton fan, and so am I, of Newt's Seeds of Contemplation, where he says, a tree gives glory to God by being a tree. And the essence of sanctity is being who we are and all of our incarnate messiness, and that's the holiness of it. And when we can embrace our sexuality, whatever it is, with its shadow and its light, that's holiness, and that's authenticity. That's what it means to be a saint. And as Merton says, I can choose to be false to myself. I can choose to wear the mask. That is unholy, ungodly. And to me, the real evil of these voices that we we're talking about on the alt-right, when we call it, is when they, they force people to wear a mask, to live in hiding, to live in shame. That is not holiness. You just raised a point that I think, as a layperson, I really want to lift up, and that is, there are people who go into church who are afraid to be themselves in church. And that breaks my heart because they're, they're going into church as some kind of fantasy play or, or a, a, a put on. Mm -hmm. And so they never, feel, they never feel that they've really brought themselves and their brokenness to the altar. And so they're all, they're, their brokenness has never been healed. Well, it, it can't be. I mean, we, we read in the Gospel of John that we're to worship God in spirit and in truth that authentic worship of God can only happen when we are truthful, when we are honest before God and can bring before God all of who I am to celebrate my successes, but also the things where I really struggle. And, you know, I think we also need to overcome this myth in the church that, you know, sexual struggles are the most serious struggles that we have. I mean, you know, yes, that's where there's a lot of brokenness and pain, but frankly, I think that for most people, that's not what they're really struggling with. Um, I, re you know, I hear confessions, and so when people come to me, sometimes they go through the laundry list, and they usually conclude some kind of sexual sin or whatever. I'll ask them at the end of their list, they'll say, which of the, of the sins you bring before you, which one is the one that causes you the most pain? Or which is the one that most troubles you? And nine times out of ten, it's not the sexual thing. It's a failure in a relationship. It's a struggle with some kind of addiction. But it's not, per se, sexual. And I think that shows us a disconnect between the kind of energy that we focus on sex rather than looking at people's real struggles. That that their, their lives of holiness don't rise and fall in that one area. And it seems to me, I mean, you're, you're a moral theologian, and this is, so this is really up in your wheelhouse, um, in, in sexual ethics and, and, and cultural ethics and sort of thing. And, and it seems to me from the pastoral side, like you're talking about, whether it's in the sacramental celebration of the sacrament of penance, whether it's in pastoral counseling, or whether it's just kind of publicly speaking or ta talking with folks, that we as and I say we, meaning those of us who are ordained, those of us who are in, in public ministry, um, maybe not individually, but collectively. When we, when we talk about complicity, we as church leaders have failed the people of God by overemphasizing things like, you know, again, like you rightly said, there is the reality of, of sexual sin, and sexuality does bring with it brokenness and pain. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, I, I see there's an, an analog as well when we talk about life issues, and, mm. and as, as a community of, of faith leaders, 
overemphasizing for so many decades that abortion is the only issue. What it does is it eclipses the real struggles, the real life issues, the real um, problems in so many other areas of society and of personal life. Um, it's, it kills me. Well, yeah, because when we brought that up. The, one of the positive things in the bishop's November 2018 statement on racism is they say that racism is a life issue. And I want to congratulate the bishops because they're just catching up with Pope John Paul II, who in 1999 called upon Catholics to be unconditionally pro-life. And in the context, he called for Catholics to stand up and to eradicate every form of racism. So racism is a life issue, but what we've done is we've created this understanding of this culture in the church where abortion becomes the litmus test for all of our life concerns, and that's not what our, the richness of our church and our tradition have to say. I mean, no one could accuse John Paul II of being soft on abortion, but he had the wisdom to understand that life was much more encompassing than, than the act of birth that it had to be, what do we, how do we treat this life once it comes into the world? That is just as much the acid test of our commitment to life as it is to our, you know, passion against abortion. And if I can just pick up on that, speaking of John Paul II in 1999, when he visited Denver that same year, he made this impassioned plea on the ground, on the soil of the United States to say, you have got to end capital punishment. Yes. That the death penalty is part of this, you yes. know, this seamless garment, as, as uh, Cardinal Bernadine used to call it. Right. Um, and, and that for people to say, well, John Paul II was only about abortion is complete nonsense. No, well, it's, yeah, it's... Uh, I would say it as a professor, it's a profound misunderstanding, but I think your, your nonsense <laughs> word is, is appropriate. It really is. I mean, it's, it's, it's based on a, um, a fancy word, eisegetical pick, picking and choosing the thing about John Paul that I want to hold on to because it baptizes my own political orientation, rather than understanding that the gospel should make us all uncomfortable no matter what our, our place on the political spectrum is. Now, some of our listeners may have been told by their friends that what Dan just mentioned, Cardinal Bernadine's consistent ethic of life, sometimes called the seamless garment, that that's some kind of sham Catholicism or that that's, that will lead you down a bad rabbit hole. What should we say to lay people who have been told that, that caring about a wider spectrum of life issues than just abortion is the wrong way to be Catholic? How do we minister and evangelize to them? How do we speak to them uh, as lay people? Mm -hmm. And I'm asking both of you as priests, how, mm. how do I as a lay person minister to those that have called me to task when I try and talk about this seamless, seamless garment stuff? I think that in my own life, all you can do is um, speak the truth that you know and speak it in love. Um, I guess the, the gospel parable that inspires my life is the sower and the seed, that I'm responsible to sow the seed. I can't control where it falls or the kind of response that it gets. And even Jesus said that some seed is going to fall on rocky ground and shallow ground. I can't control that. The only responsibility I have is to be as faithful to my call and to point out when people are in error. I mean, I've had people come up to me and say that, you know, how can you be defending Pope Francis because he issued this um, apostolic exhortation, Amoris Laetitia, and it's not magisterial. Someone, had to someone told me that here at Congress. Oh, jeez. 
And uh, I said, of course it's magisterial. I said, it, he's the Pope. And, <laughs> it's uh, exercise of ordinary magisterium, literally. <laughs> yeah, literally. And so, but I realized no matter what I was going to say, this person was not going to be convinced. And so all I could do is say, look, I'm offering to you the truth that is there. And if you accept it or not, you know, I'm still going to pray for you and love you as a brother in Christ, but that's what you're saying is simply wrong. And I think sometimes it's be too of us as, as Christians to say that. And it's not a matter of being politically correct. It's a matter of saying, no, there is right and there is wrong. And simply because you hold this as a deeply cherished opinion doesn't make it right. Well, Father Brian Massengale, we're so grateful that you've taken the time to be with us. And uh, please keep up the great work you do here at Congress and in the classroom at Fordham and in your writing. We all look and up to Well, it. you too. I mean, you inspire us. And this kind of I can't wait to see what this podcast actually looks like and sounds like <laughs> when it's all put together. But thank you. This has been wonderful. Thank you. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. And we are here at Los Angeles Religious Education Congress, our special edition. And we are privileged to have with us a polymath, a genius of many sorts. Are we describing you? (laughs) Talking about David, but but we also have Tony Alonzo with us. Tony is, you are many things. You are a liturgical composer, you are assistant professor of theology and culture, and the director of the Catholic Studies program at Candler School of Theology at Emory University, um, and a dear friend, I, I, I guess, can I claim that? We interviewed for doctoral programs I together. I know. We shouldn't talk about that on the air. I, <laughs> I, I put my... We didn't I, say the schools. That's true. That's true. Yeah. We didn't, neither of us went there. <laughs> no. Where we met. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> In any event, David did his PhD at Vanderbilt, by the way. So we're not talking about that. School. Love no, Vandy. No. Yeah. Yeah, Vandy's great. Go, go, Commodores. 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 Yes. What's Emory's? What are your mascot? What's your mascot? <laughs> Eagles. Eagles. <laughs> I've never been good with mascots. It's the Emory Eagles. Well, Tony, we're so glad to have you here. You are, uh, when people think of L.A. Congress, they think of a lot of things. You've got your workshops on spirituality, theology, scripture, uh, everything under the sun, and, of course, liturgical music, liturgy. Um, And one of the cool things, and we've talked with a lot of folks about this that's so great about L.A. Congress is that, you know, whether it's the liturgies themselves, whether it's the workshops, whether it's visiting the booths, you actually meet the composers. Everybody's favorite music, everybody's favorite liturgical settings, they know the names, the, the Tony Alonzos, the Marty Hoggins, the David Haases, um, and here you are in the flesh. You also grew up, essentially, with the L.A. Congress, right? You had a pivotal role and retired very recently, and I remember this. You were kind of like the lead male cantor for the big liturgies. Is that right? Yeah, since I was about 24 years old, I started doing that at John Flaherty's invitation along with Balomar Jansen. It was an incredible run. Two pros, two pros. So how many years have you been coming to L.A. Congress? Gosh, it's, it's been all about 17 years. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That is. I was recalling to someone today, the first time I came, I was so excited because I was on GIA's bill and I could charge my sandwich to them. <laughs> the bills have gotten more expensive I was gonna over say. the 17 years. Um, so what is your favorite thing about Congress? I mean, what, especially for listeners who've never been, sell it to them. 
I think the the thing for me about Congress that sets it apart is the like the deep diversity that's here. I mean, and I mean everything from the ethnic diversity to the like kind of versions of Catholicism. We have protesters outside protesting all kinds of things from conservative and progressive angles, and everybody somehow finds a home here amidst it all. And it's a powerful experience of church and, and remaining together across deep difference. So, Tony, I'm aware that you you are teaching at Emory. Emory is formerly a Methodist school. Methodists are very good at putting their music and their theology together. But I'm interested from a Catholic perspective how you think that theology and music uh, work together to reinforce liturgical education and spiritual growth. Yeah, I mean, I always like to say that they don't walk out humming the homily. And I think, uh, (laughs) no offense to my brother here, (laughs) but uh, music anchors uh, the word on our hearts in a profound way in over the course of a lifetime. I mean, there's new research that says that even people with Alzheimer's can remember words of songs. So to me, that kind of reframes the stakes of what we sing in church, and it really matters what we sing, the words we sing and the melodies we sing them to. I love that you just said the stakes of this, because there really is something at stake in worship. It's not just showing up, but it is an investment. It does have a payoff. And if we, if we miss that fact, and I think sometimes people can get very jaded about worship. I love that you're talking about what a person is going to be taking with them through the doors and out into the world. That's a great perspective. That's, I spend a lot of time praying about that myself in my own compositional process. One of the cool things that I really appreciate about you, Tony, and that's something I think we do share in common is that not only is there the kind of ivory tower academic work, you at Emory, me at CTU that we do, but there's also a broader commitment to reaching a a general audience, uh, an audience of uh, liturgical musicians and the workshops that you do and the kind of leadership that you provide, um, as well as, uh, you know, the kind of workshops that you do here at LA Congress. So can you tell us a little bit about your sense of vocation as an academic theologian, as a liturgical composer? as somebody who also reaches a broader audience, how does that all fit together for you? Yeah, I never had designs on being an academic theologian. The music came first, the pastoral work came first, encounters with real people came first, uh, and then trying to make sense of that in the academy came second. So for me, everything I do, no matter how far up into that ivory tower I go, I always have my eye on how that affects the faith of my abuela, um, of my family, of my nephew, my niece. Um, And it's always on my mind, both in the academic writing that I do and, of course, in the music that I write. Do you have a favorite Tony Alonzo song? No. (laughs) (laughs) So who, who, okay, so let's flip that around. When you are composing, do you have people that you feel especially inspired by or that you especially draw from their bodies of work as touchstones? So I've had the opportunity to be mentored by incredible people. I grew up in southern Minnesota, which is kind of like this weird liturgical music haven. Um, Marty Haugen, David Haas, Jeannie Cotter, lots of folks, Donna Pena are from there, and they were huge mentors for me from a very young age. And I would say being around their work has had huge influence on me. Can you say a little bit about, um, just switching gears back, this is it's kind of like a tug of war here between LA Congress on the one hand, liturgical composition. I'm very excited to hear about the work that you and your colleague Susan are doing at the Catholic Studies Program at Emory. Susan went to Boston College. I had the opportunity to meet her and know her there and her husband, Drew. How are things going? What's, what's that about? Yeah, it's amazing. Atlanta, we believe, is the largest Catholic archdiocese in the country without a Catholic university. Um, we had 200,000 Catholics in 1990, now we have 1.2 million Catholics, half of whom are Latino. 
So we're hoping at this home base of Candler School of Theology of United Methodist Seminary, we can kind of marshal our incredible resources in scripture and history, supplement it with uh, Susan and Mai's interest in culture and sacrament and Eucharist, and create a robust program that will serve the diverse and growing needs of the Southeast. That's awesome. That's exciting. And David, who taught down there and studied down in that corner of the world, I mean, that's got to be music to your ears, pun intended. Well, yeah. I mean, so I'm a graduate also of Columbia Theological Seminary, just across Decatur from where you are. But I had a chance when I was there to also work at Emory with Walt Lowe and a couple of other theologians there. So Emory was important in my own theological journey. And one of the things that struck me about it was it was how open it was to those different voices. And so I'm very, very pleased to hear that that spirit is still being reinforced and encouraged down there. Yeah, one of my key mentors at Emory, Don Saliers, was actually pivotal in forming so many uh, theologians, Catholic and non-Catholic alike, but Jesuits like Bruce Morrill and others. So it's always been kind of a home for Catholics, maybe accidentally, but now we're trying to approach it with greater intention. Tony, it's so good to meet you and so good to have a conversation with you. And thank you for your work in the church and your service and your heart for parishioners. Thank you for the work that you do. Thanks, y'all. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should check them out at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is FrancisFXPod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes you can check out from our first season. Please go back and listen to those. Thanks for listening. <laughs>